Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Joel Krutz. Originally from New Zealand, Joel has been developing and leading strategic financial organizations around the world for over two decades. Joel is currently Chief Financial Officer of the clean tech smart glass company, Crown Electrokinetics Corp. Prior to Crown, Joel was CFO of Viacom CBS Networks International, a $2 billion division of the global multimedia enterprise. While at Viacom CBS, Joel led a team which fully overhauled the financial operating model and guided the business through a period of record growth, diversification, and expansion. Before that, Joel held a number of progressive London and New York-based CFO and senior strategic finance roles, where he built and developed financial infrastructure to support businesses through a range of rapid growth, turnaround, and portfolio optimization challenges. Joel received a Bachelor of Management Studies majoring in accounting from Waikato University, New Zealand. He obtained his professional Chartered Institute of Management Accountants qualification from the UK's Association of Chartered Management Accountants and his CTAMU certification from Harvard Business School's Executive Program. Joel, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem, Megan. Pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to be delving into your experiences as a CFO supporting startup efforts for an established company and as a CFO for a true startup company and taking a look at how these two roles have differed. I'm excited about this topic and learning from your challenges, so let's get started. First, tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. No problem. So I grew up in rural New Zealand on a farm which meant a lot of early mornings, hard manual work, and uh, I guess a major case of FOMO, which probably explains why I've ended up living in large cities around the world. But it also provided me with, a, uh, I guess, the lessons in fire management. Again, that hard work, better understanding the, the relationship between ourselves and environment, crop rotation, which uh, I had no idea at the time were preparing me, I guess, for, for a later life and uh, operating in a sustainable business such as Crown, where I am now. When I left the farm, I uh, did a Bachelor of Management Studies and majored in accounting at, at university and then moved to London, where I started to really learn about finance, business and uh, how to practically apply skills. In London, I had a a number of roles in companies such as the BBC, BP Oil, Bloomsbury Publishing, and uh, most significantly at at Viacom. But wherever I was working, I was always learning and just trying to extract as much from every experience from, from, from everybody that I encountered, whether it was studying management decks, rolling through systems manuals, or uh, just speaking to to people to to really understand what they did, how I could add value, and uh, just trying to connect dots. I've spent just over two decades in media. All of it was in the international markets, although I I was actually based out of New York for 
the last 10 years. And uh, during that time, I, I became adept and uh, very familiar with operating under high levels of volatility, extremely dynamic conditions. And uh, then ultimately as uh, CFO of Biocom CVS International, learning how to manage an extremely diverse portfolio of international businesses. But uh, I think the, the one constant has always been a desire to constantly learn whether in practice or uh, just maintaining a, a theoretical understanding of what's going on around me. Sounds like an amazing background. And uh, we actually have BP oil in common. I worked there first. It's a long, long time ago, too, in Chicago. Okay. So are there any particular stories or moves within your career that stand out as turning points? A couple spring to mind. But very, very early on, uh, in fact, when I was first uh, hired at, at Viacom, it was uh, on a, a two-week basis and uh, I was asked to come in and support the accounts payable department and I'd been there for a, a week and noticed that there was a, a large pile of, of work on my supervisor's desk that, that just didn't seem to be going anywhere so uh, I asked what it was if I could help with it and it turned out to be the international invoices, which uh, he, he really did not enjoy doing. And um, I assumed that responsibility for the, uh, the remaining part of that half week. And it led to the next 19 years and 50, <laughs> 50 weeks that I had at, uh, at Viacom. And I think what it, what it taught me was that you always have your eyes open, always be looking to add value and uh, inevitably opportunity will, will find its way to you. You just never know when a door is going to open. Exactly. You know, I think if you've, if you've got your, your heads up mentality, right, and, and are looking around and, and not just focused on what you're doing, but also looking at that, that world that you're interacting with, either, you know, directly and indirectly, you have a much greater chance of discovering those doors of opportunity. Another, I guess, move in my career was I'd been CFO of the emerging markets for a period of time, which was a really challenging and interesting role with a, a very unique and diverse set of, of markets. And I was then asked to move into corporate and establish a new finance and operations organization. And that, that had three core buckets of, of focus. One was leading international finance projects. Another was integrating any merger and ac acquisition activity from a finance perspective. And the last one was to turn around underperforming finance organizations. And there was no guidance, really. There was, there was certainly no timetable. And uh, there, was, there was no precedent for how I was actually uh, going to execute on, on the tasks. And it was, a, you know, it was, it was transformational in, in, in a number of respects for me. First of all, I, I, it was a true global role 
so I had uh, a good understanding of the scale of the business at that, you know, on, on every continent. It was multicultural, multinational. So learning how to, to interact and to operate with a, you know, a very diverse community was eye-opening. It taught me to hit the ground running. Like there wasn't really a great deal of lead time for me to get up to speed, to really define what I need to do. It was uh, get in there, absorb as much information and, and turn it around in, uh, in a very rapid uh, period of time. And lastly, I, I really started to learn a, a good deal of the agility and uh, resiliency again, because there wasn't any real regularity or, or normality to a day, let alone to a week. And so having the, the past be very structured in terms of timetable and deliverables and then move into this world, it just it gave me that sense of creating my own timetable and, and structure and the need to, to be able to, to move and jump from one task and one field of focus to another in, uh, in pretty quick time. And uh, that was very helpful and beneficial as I uh, operated in the international for, uh, for a couple of decades. I'm sure that must have been challenging. What uh, skills did you draw on to be able to transition from a role that was structured into a role that basically had no structure at all? I probably learned a lot coming out of rural New Zealand and then having to adapt and cope to, to working in, in, in major cities around the world, right? So again, that desire to learn, coming from that, that point of view that, you know, I, I know very little, right? There's, a, there's an incredible amount for me to be able to learn and, and master and having that willingness to, to just listen and absorb really helped. Uh, when you're put into situations, it was, it was very much about building relationships quickly and ensuring that you engendered the support and partnership from, from individuals. You know, it was uh, very much a matter of my success in what I was doing relied on others who I was either helping to, to integrate into the business, helping to deliver project work or, or helping to turn around their, their business. So that relationship the ability to build relationships, that willingness to learn and to listen. It gave me a, an advantage or uh, it gave me the, the abilities. To, uh, That's a great point. Relationships throughout a career are, are so, so important. With COVID around, I just sometimes wonder, like, how are people going to build those relationships that uh, help so many of us along the way? Yeah, I think the, the answer to that is... Uh, still out there somewhere. But what I found to be, to be very useful is I think you have to go the extra distance to really understand your teammates or your partners and get a, a, a real sense of their, their context and their predicament, right? Because it's, it's very two-dimensional, this, uh, this remote working. It's absolutely logistically possible, but trying to bring someone into a, a company culture, knowing when is the right time to, to be able to ask somebody to go over and above what would be normal. Face-to-face, -face, you, can, you can do that, right? You can react real time 
and you have a sense, but in a remote world, I think you you have to have that that three dimensional understanding of, of where they are in their life. What what are factors that they're having to deal with? And uh, if you have that that sensitivity and that that awareness, then again, I think it just helps with that relationship, and it just helps when you are, are, are asking a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, that's my my view on it anyway. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And and I've had people tell me that they've actually gotten to know some of their uh, co-workers better uh, remotely just because they are forced to take the time to get to know them like that. So, yeah, I, I agree. So tell us about Crown, a bit about their history, their mission and what it is they do. Sounds like a very interesting company. It is. It is. And I feel really blessed to have uh, to found Crown or Crown to have found me. It's a new clean tech smart glass company, and and our mission is to significantly reduce carbon emission levels from one of the largest contributors to the levels of carbon that are being produced nowadays, and that's buildings. Our technology is is labelled thin film technology, and it's uh, it has a brand name of Dynamic Tint. Came out of Hewlett Packard originally around 15 years ago. And after being sitting on a shelf for a while, it was uh, rediscovered and, and brought to life by Doug Croxell, our fearless chairman and CEO. And just very briefly, the, the IP and, and the, the technology essentially means that we can suspend electrically charged pigment between two extremely thin layers of transparent film. When that film is then laminated onto any glass surface, it has the ability to be transitioned between clear and a dark state in a matter of seconds, two seconds to be precise. And when it's clear, it just looks like any normal pane of glass. But in the dark state, you can still see through it. You can still you know, make out what's outside, but it reduces or eliminates nearly all heat and light waves. And uh, with that, you know, we have incredible propensity to, to reduce the carbon emissions and uh, any energy costs of, uh, of any window, whether it's new or really importantly for us, existing, because we have the ability to retrofit for any commercial building. So that's what our first product is gonna be, Megan. We're, uh, we're, we're developing an, an insert which is a thin piece of glass with our technology laminated onto it. It has a frame with magnets in that frame, and then it will snap onto the inside of a window within a building. So I'm standing in a 25-story building here in uh, Los Angeles, and this building has roughly 3,000 windows. So we would install 3,000 of our devices into those frames. And uh, those devices will be powered by a, a lithium ion battery, which in turn is powered by a solar panel outside. So it's, it's completely renewable. And importantly, that means it doesn't need to be wired into a building either. It will wirelessly communicate with the other 2,999 devices in the building, as well as with the building management system. So once you have these devices in place, you know, you can decide whether you're going to centrally synchronize all of your windows to be dark and to be 
fully blocking out the, the light and the heat or whether you're going to give somebody sitting at a window local maps so that they can ad adapt or adjust the, uh, the tinting to their own desire. But uh, what we've seen with our initial field, field tests is that implementing these, these devices in our, our technology can save 26% of uh, energy costs in a building. Given the buildings account for 76% of the energy utility and around 40% of primary energy, uh, that's a staggering amount of potential. It's all done in a very cost-effective manner. I think you can see why I'm, I'm so passionate about this. And you think about it, this point in time where we stand now, that UN climate report, which was recently released, which was very depressing and uh, essentially said that we're, we're now set for the next 30 years, a world that's, that's really going to be heating and, and waters are going to be rising. But it also really put the onus back on society to, to start to, to reduce these uh, levels of carbon emissions and ensure that it's, it's brought under control over the next few decades. And um, there's a world of regulations that are starting to, to be brought to bear the SEC is, is, it looks, seems to be very close to having ESG metrics included in, in 10K public reports from, uh, from companies. And the current level of ESG reporting, which is it's fluent, there's no, there's no set standards. It looks like regulators are, are about to, to roll out a, a whole set of European and international regulations, which will standardize and really clarify what constitutes an appropriate level of uh, carbon emissions or other ESG measures. And um, you know, I think that's, that is really going to compel businesses, buildings to, to really look at products like uh, our dynamic tint here at Crown. And what's like the payback period on the investment? How long does it take to recoup that in utility savings? So the other beauty of this outside of the, the technology is the, the business model. So a business or a building such as this with uh, 3,000 windows would cost around $2.5 million to put these devices in, uh, in every window, which is a you know, substantial capital outlay, no doubt. But the beauty of our devices is that we can actually lease these because they're not fixtures and fittings. Right? They snap in with a magnetic frame and they can be snapped out as well. So once you start to think about spreading the cost of this investment over 10 years, it, it really reduces the amount of operating costs on an annual basis. So inside of one year, we would expect the payback to be less than nine months. Wow, that's amazing. Really fascinating product. So let's discuss your role specifically and, and what were you brought in to accomplish? Well, I see my role here as, as part engineer or scientist and, and part artist. I have to build the appropriate infrastructure that's for where the company's going, not for where the company is right now. And by that, I mean create an organization institute the controls, the systems, uh, ensure that you know, the, the demands that are required by the SEC, because we are 
that rare thing, which is a, a publicly listed startup, uh, pre-revenue. But all of that infrastructure, processes, et cetera, that's very much the engineering and the, uh, the science component of my role. The art is determining how we go about implementing the structure in a manner that propels the company forward rather than creates friction. Sometimes be the way that with a, a well-intentioned but somewhat overzealous finance function can, you know, it, it really can slow things down. It can, it can put a lot of administration and bureaucracy in the way of the business. And that can be lethal in a, in a startup, right? There's, there's absolutely a, a right place for the controls, absolutely a right place for, for process, but there has to be a, a fine level of judgment as to the level and the timing with which those are, are implemented. So, for instance, we have to institute a control environment, absolutely. Right? What I would aim to do is, is just to ensure that I give the company the, the comfort and the awareness that these controls are in place and ensure that it empowers employees. And by that, I mean they have the appropriate freedom to go forth and make decisions and to execute because they know you know, expectations. It shouldn't be seen as a, as a restrictive or complication or, or, or delaying. And um, yeah, that, that comes through spending a lot of time with the team, really understanding the mission and balancing that financial infrastructure with what the, uh, the mission critical elements of the business are. I think in addition to, to that, um, the role here is implementing best-in-class structures and processes and business support. But I'm also intent with a product like ours that I, I engineer ESG awareness into our financial and, and management processes, that we're establishing meaningful tr metrics to, to track our progress, our performance within, in terms of the carbon impacts, ensuring that we have a sustainable procurement programs, employee welfare, et cetera. Right? So to really walk the walk in this industry. I'm quite an idealist, Megan, but I, I really want that if Crown be seen as a, as a global leader, not just in smart glass technology and reducing carbon emissions, but also how we operate and manage and, and measure our successes um, on a sustainable basis. I think that will, that will pay tremendous rewards in terms of the talent that we can bring um, into the organization. And I think it'll also ensure that our, our mission and our culture is, uh, is paramount to the team. It's a bold goal and, and role, but uh, it's, it's exciting. Just your comment about, um, you know, attracting young talent. I think it's so important, like you mentioned, for organizations to be socially impactful these days and, and to be making a difference, which it sounds like Crown is doing. What we're intending to do. Yeah. Yeah. You look, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very challenging talent market now, right? There's a lot of competition. And um, I absolutely think that we've got a, an advantage being in the ESG realm, being a sustainable product developer. And we absolutely, as I said, you need to, it'll be very clear once people come into the company and they can see that it's, it's purely uh, superficial, that is not going to allow you to retain talent, right? 
and that that will that will very quickly become clear in the marketplace as well. So um, it's an imperative for us. I, I just I really don't see how businesses can uh, can avoid that. And what have been your biggest challenges since transitioning to the, your role at Crown for a startup? Well, apart from dragging my family from the east coast to the west coast. <laughs> I think the combination of being an SEC reporting CFO in a pre-revenue startup means that you're you're operating at the extremes of the spectrum, really. One moment you're presenting to investors, the next year you're proofing through a, a pretty substantial 10K disclosure document, and then the next year filling out an expense claim for a new starter. You know, so the range is, is quite jarring. But I've, again, I've always I've always thought that you you learn best when you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. And so, if I'm building an infrastructure, I want to experience every element first to know and sure what I'm talking about, and then eventually asking others to uh, to actually do. And what are the skills that you think a CFO needs to be able to thrive in a startup environment? I don't think there's a specific skill set. I think you, you you need to be able to draw upon multiple skill sets. But I guess if there is one skill set, it's knowing when to draw upon and apply each of your skill sets if that makes any sense. What I mean is you can't you can't always rely on an accounting or an analytical or a controller driven approach. It's far more nuanced. And um, again, it comes back to that that requirement of, of, of part engineer scientist and, and, and part artist. I think to be honest, it's it's more a case of character than skill sets. You you have to be adaptable, you have to be resilient, and you've got to be very proactive. You can't always expect there to be people around you to be giving you that that guidance or bounce ideas off there absolutely there, there will be the opportunity to do that but it's not always going to be there you need to be able to move quickly so you know you have to have that that judgment and that confidence in your decision making and i think uh, that combination of, of character and knowing how to draw upon your experience and your expertise will uh, put you in good stead so in your previous role, you helped an established company start up new divisions and geographical locations. In general, how does working at a true startup differ from your role at Viacom? In an established company, there's somewhat of a, a set formula. There's infrastructure in place, there's, there's resources to lean upon, but in general, there's precedent, right? There, there might be some unique elements to it, but there's a there's a playbook of sorts that you can uh, you can generally refer to. I think there's also a lot of time that is spent dealing with the administration and uh, you know, in some some respects the bureaucracy that is an essential component of of large and established companies. And there's also a lot of time and energy that has to be invested in driving change. You have to ensure that you get the sponsorship on board, that you change hearts and minds before you even begin the change. 
that level of uh, energy and emotion that has to be invested up front is uh, it's substantial and it's necessary. If I then contrast that with startup world, you know, clearly there's, there's very little instruction in place. There's very little in the way of precedent or guidance or an understanding as to how best you approach or prioritize the work or the task at, at hand. So it goes back to that point I made before about you need to have a high level of judgment. You've got to have confidence in your abilities and in your, your capability to make the right decisions. And you also, you really do need to, to have a, a very good level of empathy to, to really understand your the founders, to really understand your executive team and, and, and understand how you can help them be successful in a very fluid basis too, because obviously things are, are moving at a, a very quick rate very dynamic and um, trying to be two or three steps ahead of, uh, of where everybody else is, is heading. I think it's a, it's a critical skill set and it, it takes a while to develop, but that I think is, uh, is, is how you will be successful there. It's, uh, it's just skating to where the park is going to be and, uh, and building that, that infrastructure and that, that support for six, 12, three years down the line. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. Oh, and the other big difference is that I, uh, I'm really loving wearing Nikes to work every day. <laughs> How does your family like the West Coast compared to the East Coast? Uh, it's quite a surreal place to, uh, to drop in. But, you know, they love the space. They, they love the, uh, the, the weather. They love the swimming pool. So it's uh, they're, they're acclimating what we're I mean, not suitable for podcasts, but you know what we're we're doing at the moment is is just really evaluating whether or not I, I we live here or whether I I do this work uh, bicoastally. And um, I think we came out here initially thinking that it was just going to be a, a trial period, but it looks more and more likely that the family won't be going back to the east coast for uh, an extended period of time. Well, I guess if there's one good thing that's come out of COVID, it's flexibility to be able to do things like that. Um, yeah. That's one benefit I do have in my family. They're very, very supportive. And uh, my wife has uh, really successfully managed her work remotely. And uh, yeah, you just have to look at this as an opportunity to do and explore in a way that you, you haven't or you can't at normal times with the school year and uh, with work commitments uh, we've made the most of it so did crown find you or did you find them yeah somebody from the board reached out said that this was a an opportunity that i might be interested in it didn't seem like an obvious opportunity wrong coast straight into public company reporting uh brand new sector but as a company we're part of our culture it's that we have a, a hiring process that involves as many people as it needs to. And in my case, it was a lot. I spoke to board members. Uh, I spoke to all of the executive teams. So it was, it was around nine rounds of interviews. But with every interview, the interest and the enthusiasm and the understanding of the potential just, just really grew. It's a very rare opportunity where you can come into a, 
a startup, a startup that's publicly listed, but also a startup that has such a an unlimited potential, really, to do something that's so beneficial for the planet, but also at the same time has so much potential to, to generate shareholder value. It was an extraordinary opportunity. And um, yeah, as I said earlier, I'm just uh, very, very thankful and uh, appreciative that it's, uh, it's found its way to my door. And talk to us specifically about the allocation of capital and how that differs between your CFO role with Viacom and your current CFO role at Crown. Yeah, yeah it's night and day. Yeah. The vast majority of my time at um, you know, the large companies such as Viacom, CBS, cash management wasn't targeted at a level that you either felt responsible for or, or, or really capable of, of influencing. A lot of the decision-making happens at corporate, which makes an absolute sense through the treasury team. So you know, as, a, as a divisional CFO, you obviously have, have targets and it's part of your, your metrics, but it was far more focused on growing the revenue profitability um, more so than the actual cash management. I certainly had no sense of the, the, the cost of capital within the, within the company and the district strategy teams would always apply a percentage to our proposals, but to this day, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that ever correlated to. But um, the main focus for me when it came to allocation of capital really was optimizing the portfolio, you know, just ensuring that we were deploying investment between businesses with either the highest returns, the yields, or those that had the highest potential. And uh, obviously, the, the contrast of that was pulling uh, resource from, from businesses where that potential had, uh, had reached its zenith. If I now contrast that with, with the startup, it's the lifeblood here. You know, it's daily monitoring now, you know, our cash burn, determining how we're tracking, understanding how we, we have to course correct. Every single payment is, is scrutinized and that we're, you know, we're being super frugal in all aspects, apart from those that are business critical, such as hiring talent and obviously putting the, the R&D into our product and, uh, and also into our customer discovery process. You know, in addition to the daily focus, we're always looking down the, down the road with a view to, to how we support that investment infrastructure and talent acquisition as well. So. It's a constant balance between that that day-to-day cash management and then the strategic capital planning. It's critical and it's a great challenge, one that I'm really enjoying. I'm sure that procuring the capital must be night and day as well. So can you talk to us about the specific challenges you've faced at Crown and, and how you're overcoming them or how you've overcome them? Well, I was blessed in, in that I, I arrived at Crown post-IPO, uh, we, we went public at the beginning of January, I'm oh, sorry, the, uh, the end of January this year. And um, you know, we have a, a, a passionate base of, uh, of investors who, who firmly believe in the product and management and, and the mission. And that means that we have a runway, which is not always something that startups have available to them, but it's obviously a finite runway. And um, 
that was was never the case uh, with a with a large corporate organization. Right? The the funding and the cash and capital was always assumed to be available and on tap as long as the the, the cause was worthy and the requirements were met. But there's a high bar and high level of responsibility that we have to our investors to ensure that 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 capital that they're entrusting us with to uh, to grow crown and to, to ensure that we're delivering on our mission and our product and uh, you know i feel that 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 very personal that that responsibility so we have a a lot of discussions with our investors you know, we, we we keep them well updated on on our progress and expectations and um Obviously, they uh, they have full transparency and uh, visibility into to how we're we're allocating that that capital. You know, it's a it's a healthy bit of uh, pressure and um, awareness that they they have that that, that keeps us operating things and uh, managing them in an optimal manner. And what advice would you give other CFOs who are stepping into the role at a startup? What surprises did you experience yeah. along the way? I think. Before you step into the role, do your diligence on the team, regardless of, of, of how tough the circumstances may or may not be. It's invariably going to be the team that dictates your success. So the executive team, the founders, anything that you can do to, to obviously research or ask questions upfront in that interview process. You know, you really are interviewing the company on an equal basis to them interviewing you. When you get in to a startup, be prepared to be constantly distracted. You know, I think there's, there's a comfort, assurance from having a, a good timetable and, and schedules to, to check through and, and to, to check off. But your initial timetable is, is really going to be start work, deal with whatever gets thrown at you, finish work. <laughs> you <know? laughs> And read a lot. You know, I think uh, something that I really love about Crown is that we have a mandated reading list, which we prescribe no rules rules. So the Netflix story by Reed Hastings, Working Backwards, which is Amazon's operating uh, procedures. And then we have some, some very startup-focused books, such as uh, The Lean Startup, but most compellingly, Four steps to the epiphany, you know, and that, that's really our Bible, and that that to us represents our approach to going to market, which is very much a customer focus rather than just uh, assuming that your product is, is going to go out there and uh, and people are going to be accepting it with open arms. Right, you really do need to understand your market and, and your customers. But um, I love that fact that we're we're, we're readers and that we are learners and that we're, we're also appliers of, uh, of what we're learning. And um, any employee actually should, uh, should, should look to, to factor in. Yeah, I, I love the required reading list. I think it inspires a lifelong love of learning. It's important to keep reading even when you're long done with school. Yeah, it's actually we have when we're evaluating talent and, uh, and looking to bring individuals in we we have three bars that we uh, we ask them to clear one is obviously that your competence that 
you're going to be performing the work at a very high standard. That's almost table stakes. The second is that you have a passion for sustainability, right? That you genuinely believe in our mission and that you don't just live that at work, but that you also live it in your life. And thirdly, that you are a lifelong learner, whether that be continuing studies, whether it be reading, you know, it, it really is important to us that you're curious and you have that desire to constantly better yourself and to, to continually improve. And, uh, and I, I don't think there's uh, much wrong with that as a, as a set of uh, requirements. Yeah, I think that those uh, are three great things to be looking for. I'm sure you must find a, a lot of great talent when you're looking at those three. So as a CFO, what is keeping you up at night these days? I think uh, the next bear market, you know, I have to be aware of, of what that's going to mean. You know, we've obviously been in a fairly bullish and buoyant market for some time, but obviously gravity will, will generally prevail. And, uh, you know, you don't have the same insulation in a, uh, in a small growing business as you do in a, in a large established. So just thinking about how that's going to impact the business model, how it's going to impact our customer base, capital markets, all of those, those elements. Not that you, know, you can influence a lot, but it's certainly having that in mind and, and starting to think about contingencies is, is something that I do contemplate a lot. Operating in, a, in this new sector, you know, so the ESG, sector is is just exploding at the moment you know there's there's an incredible amount of ESG funds all of the major funds are mandating a, a huge portion of their investment now has to have the ESG stamp within it and um, you know again what as a CFO can I do to make the most of that and to ensure that you know, we're staying abreast of regulatory changes, shifts again and, and customer tastes. It's, uh, you know, a, a very fluid and, and, and dynamic state and uh, just being very aware of the external environment is uh, something that I'm, I'm really focused on because you can get wrapped up in the internal world of, of building this business and, uh, and building this infrastructure, but it's, yeah, critical that you have a heads up mentality here and uh, looking around at competitive forces, looking around at you know, regulatory forces, as well as the uh, the, the general landscape. And um, lastly, it's just maintaining balance in my life. Just again, when you dive into something like this, it can be all consumed if you let it consume you. But you know, I have a young family, a supportive wife, and uh, I need to make sure that you know, my allocation of time and, and energy is, uh, is appropriately balanced. And I'm getting better at that every day. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I'm sure that can't be easy. I mean, being a CFO is challenging enough, let alone for a startup company. Yeah. Joel, thank you so much for being my guest today. I enjoyed it, Megan. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and the resulting insights. And I appreciate your time today. And I wish you and Crown the best. It sounds like you guys are both going to do great things. 
Thank um, you very much. To all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personif. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personif can do for you by visiting personif.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personif. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personif.com. Thanks for listening.